and open up to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be finishing up this chapter starting the next. You know, there's a kind of a common scene that you see in movies or you read about in books. And it's somebody walking up to a certain situation, maybe a crime scene, a disaster. If it's a war movie, it could be coming up to a camp or a battlefield. And, and they say usually right away, who's in charge here? I need to talk to who's in charge. The answer to this question in our lives is of utmost importance. Who is in charge of our lives? Who's in charge of me? Who's in charge of you? We need to make sure that we answer this question in a biblical way. Now, before we jump into the passage, a little bit of context. Uh, We started chapter 21 in Jerusalem. Jesus comes into Jerusalem as this kind of triumphant entry. We celebrate this on Palm Sunday. It's about a week before his crucifixion. He has come into Jerusalem, the center of religious authority in the Jewish world and, well, Jewish political authority, which really wasn't saying much because the Jews at this time had been conquered by the Romans and the Roman Empire was in charge of them politically but they still had a lot of freedom religiously. And so Jesus has come into Jerusalem. We also talked about when he got there, he walks into the temple and in a place that was reserved for worship, he has gone in and he has found people selling doves for the sacrifice, changing people's money, all for a a very tidy profit. And he went into that place and he grabbed their tables and he threw them over. And money has spread. I imagine doves have flown away. Chaos has ensued. He went back. He spent the night somewhere else and he has come back into Jerusalem. And that's where we're picking up the narrative here. All of that has just happened maybe the day before. All of it is in the Jewish leaders' minds. It's in the crowd's minds. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? So we're going to be looking at the authority of Jesus. And we see right away, starting in verse 23, this clash between Jesus and the religious leaders. Look at verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts while he was teaching. The chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? They had a couple concepts of authority. There was the authority from the word of God. People that were following God's will, God's word, for them this primarily centered around the temple and whether worship in the temple was done appropriately and in line with God's Word And so, of course, Jesus coming into the temple and throwing the tables over raises the question right away. We looked at this last week. Does he think he's in charge of the temple? And the answer, of course, is yes, actually. He certainly is in charge of the temple. He's the very son of God. So they want to know, where are you getting this authority from? They had another way of kind of looking at authority. Rabbinical authority was passed down from the teacher to the student based on what the teacher taught. So someone would come along. Gamaliel's a pretty famous example of this. He was a famous Jewish rabbi. You all know Gamaliel, right? I've got his autograph. 
It's very, he's got his poster on the wall. No, he was a very popular, famous Jewish teacher. And he had come up with a very specific way of interpreting the Old Testament. And then he develops his own disciples. He teaches that to them. They teach it to their disciples and so on and so forth of the school of Gamaliel. And so if somebody got up and they said, well, this scripture means this because Gamaliel said, and I'm from the school of Gamaliel. And they would wave their banner, go Gamaliel. And then somebody else from the school of Hillel will stand up and say, no, no, I know the right interpretation. And they would just have great fun. The mascots would duke it out. It was wonderful. But they had this idea of rabbinical authority. That didn't actually happen. I'm adding maybe a little bit. Rabbinical authority that was passed down. So they want to know, Jesus, which school are you from? Where did you get your authority? Of course, they did, too, have a concept of political authority. And again, for them, that was pretty much non-existent other than this ruling Roman oppressive empire that had invaded their land, taken over, even set up a fortress right outside their temple, looking right down into their place of worship were soldiers with giant spears to make sure they didn't do anything wrong. Jesus, where did you get your authority? We understand all these things. You know, it's a good question. We give the religious religious leaders of Jesus' day a hard time, and it's usually very well deserved, unfortunately. But it is a good question. By what authority? A lot of people want to say today, well, Jesus is my friend. Well, that's great. But a friend doesn't necessarily have authority in your life. By what authority? Well, Jesus makes me feel good. Well, that's, that's good. But what about authority? Does Jesus have authority in our lives? Do we recognize and confess and admit that he is in charge? Because at the heart of all of this, understand underneath this question by the religious leaders is a presupposition, a preconceived idea. They believe they are in charge and Jesus must submit to them. That's underlying this question. It's basically, who do you think you are? And now Jesus answers their question in a unique way. He's going to ask them a question. What's going on here? Have you ever seen the movie Princess Bride? Love that movie. Great movie. There's one of the best sword fight scenes in any movie ever between the Dread Pirate Robert and an Eagle Montoya. It is phenomenal. These two guys, the, the actors worked really, really hard. To learn the sword fighting. They were trained by masters. I've read interviews. Yes, I'm a total geek. It was awesome. And, and watching it is poetry in motion. And again, you know, it's a movie, but still, they did a great job. What you're seeing here is like a verbal sword fight between master teachers, Jesus and the rabbis. So he's going to counter their thrust, right? He, they, they've just kind of taken a stab at him. Who do you think you are? By whose authority? And he's going to parry that. And he's actually in that parry, he's coming after them. And he's going to do it by asking a question. This was a typical way that rabbis would debate things. You would answer a question with a question. And look at what Jesus says. Verses 24, and we'll just go through the beginning of 25. Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? 
So there's the question. goes back to John the Baptist, and he's asking the religious leaders, if you can tell me where John got his authority, I will tell you where my authority comes from. He's putting them in a very difficult position, and they know it. But he's also doing something else. He is linking his authority with the authority over John the Baptist. Because what he's saying is, we get our authority from the same place, from heaven, from God, the Father. John the Baptist, in case you're not familiar, he was Jesus's older cousin. Uh, he was raised and, and kind of stepped up as a prophet. He was sent by God into the world to prepare the way for Jesus. And his mission and his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent because the Messiah is coming. He prepared people to witness Jesus and receive who Jesus was by having them repent, turn away from their sins, and get ready for what God was bringing. God was bringing Jesus. People, I don't know if I want to say they loved John. They were amazed by John. He was a spectacle. He served out in the wilderness, like the desert wilderness. He wore crazy clothes made out of camel's hair, rough, itchy stuff. He ate locusts and wild honey, just living out. He was a crazy mountain man of a guy. And he said crazy things to people. He was so bold in speaking about the word of God. And I'm not saying the word of God is crazy, but he didn't care what people thought or what they heard. He said, this is truth. And he just preached it. And people went out. Because it was a great spectacle. Some of them went out because they realized we are going in the wrong direction and we need to repent and change and get ready for what God is doing. Even the religious leaders would go out and talk to John because they were amazed at what he was saying. They didn't agree with it, but they were amazed by it. And so Jesus asks them, where does John's authority come from? If John... And this is really what Jesus is asking. Did John make up his own authority? Is he just another guy claiming to have authority? Which really means you could take it or leave it. Don't need to accept it. It's just some guy. Or is his authority from God above, from heaven? This puts the religious leaders in a very difficult place. And their response reveals a lot about their heart. Let's pick it up halfway through 25 here. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people for they hold that John was a prophet. They're struggling here. And I want to point out what their struggle is because we have so much to learn from this. Notice they're not struggling to figure out what the right answer is. Do you see that? Nowhere in there are they saying, what is the right answer? What they're struggling with is how others will respond to what other or whatever answer they give and how their answer makes them look. Do you see the difference? And I just want to caution us as Christians. There's so much pressure in the world, always has been, always will be, against our faith against the word of God. But there's so much pressure and, and it's so easy as Christians to say, well, we got to be careful how we look to the world. 
Let's answer a question in a way that looks good to the world. No, answer the question the right way, period. Doesn't mean we have to be rude or obnoxious about it, but what is the proper and right answer? They understand that if they admit John got his authority from heaven, from God, then they look really bad for rejecting John. And they did. They can't say he got it from heaven because now they're hypocrites. Likewise, if they say he just had a merely human authority, the crowd is going to say, wait a minute, we like that guy. We believed in what he was saying. Who are you? What kind of authority do you have? And they could lose their influence and their positions and their prestige because the people will turn against them. All of this really reveals where their authority came from. Their authority came from their position. And it came from the people that were willing to follow them. It didn't ultimately come from God. They were influencers. They weren't in authority. And Jesus is calling them on the carpet. They're more afraid of the consequences of their decision than the rightness of their decision. That's an important distinction. As Christians, we need to ask what is the right answer regardless of the consequences. Look at verse 27. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Cowards. We don't know. They're afraid to put themselves in a difficult position, so they simply say, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. If they would not accept where John the Baptist got his authority, they will certainly not accept that the Son of God has the authority from God the Father himself. All of this shows a higher authority than them. Who's in charge? The religious leaders had a huge problem with authority. And I'm going to suggest, you know, I like to talk about things that are the same over culture and over history, persecution, doubt, those sorts of things. There are some things that do change. And one of the things that is fundamentally shifting in our world and has been for some time is that our world has a huge problem with authority itself. The very idea of authority has come under attack. Anyone who is put in a position of authority, who claims to have any authority whatsoever for whatever reason, is automatically suspect simply because they are in authority. Now, we need to admit, and I want to be clear, there are and have been many in authority in our world, in the secular arena, in government, even in religious circumstances, who have greatly abused that authority. Want to make sure that's clear. Some of the suspicion is good. But the other thing that I see is that people will reject authority when it threatens their own desires. I'm not getting what I want, therefore you're not a good authority. Now, it seems to me like we are living in a world that rejects the notion of authority at all. And you'll hear this in cultural studies, postmodernism, we reject the authority, we reject references to authority, we reject the possibility of authority. The problem is we're all deceiving ourselves if we think we have actually rejected all authority. We haven't. What we've done is changed authority. We believe in our world today 
that we are the authority over everything. We sit in judgment on everything. Everything we see, every news article, every politician, every leader in the world, every policeman, every fireman, everything. We say we know better, and if we were in that position, we would do better. We believe we are the ultimate authority. This is such a fundamentally dangerous assumption. And it causes great trouble when we come to Scripture and we read that Jesus is the Son of God and He is an authority. And we say, well, I mean, He's good. Let's see what He does in my life in this way. And if He does what we want, then great. You can be an authority. And the next time, if he does what we want, great, he's an authority. I submit to Jesus wholeheartedly. And then he brings persecution and suffering. We say, wait a minute. I no longer submit to your authority, Jesus. You're not doing what I want. That is not authority. It undermines the entire concept of real and true and proper authority. That's the problem these religious leaders are struggling with. They cannot accept Jesus because he is a threat to their own personal authority. They want to be in charge of their lives and everybody around them. And throughout the rest of this passage, we're going to see Jesus use three parables to kind of tease out and discuss what his authority is. And several key issues he's going to bring up are obedience, submission, and even our eternal salvation. All of these are related to his authority. The first one is authority and obedience, and he's going to tell the parable of these two sons. I'm going to read these parables, each one in its entirety, and then we're going to look at it very quickly, but I want to get the gist of what he's talking about. Now, remember the context here. Sometimes when you read the Gospels, you have to read the introductions to what comes next, and you'll realize a day or two has passed, they've gone somewhere else, they've traveled. This is right after that discussion. It's the same conversation. They've just asked him, by what authority do you do these things? And he's challenged them. And then he says, I won't answer you. And then he says this. Let's pick it up in Matthew 21, verse 28. What do you think? This is Jesus talking. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. The parable is pretty straightforward. Two sons are told by the father, go get to work. One says, yes, I will go work, and then he doesn't go. Another one says, no way, dad, I'm not doing it. But he does end up going. And the question is, which one obeyed? And this gets at the one of the key issues at the heart of obedience and at the heart of authority is that obedience and authority are linked. If we believe and truly submit to the authority of Jesus, we must obey him. Empty words of obedience are not enough. 
There's a little bit of confusion in the translation. Your translations might have been a little bit different. Which son actually went, the older or the younger? Really, the gist of it is very clear, though. One said he would go, and he didn't. The other one said he wouldn't go, and he did. And the answer, or the question, rather, is which one truly obeyed? And even the religious leaders get this one. What's the one that went? He said he wasn't going to, but he did go. He actually obeyed. Understand what Jesus is saying here. He's saying you guys are the ones that say you will obey, but then you just don't. They were supposed to prepare God's people for the Messiah. The Messiah has come, and yet they are leading the charge to put him on a cross and get rid of him. They're not obeying. They refuse to obey. And then Jesus says this shocking thing. And let me just tell you, when you interpret parables, look for the shocking element. And this is hard sometimes because you need to dig into their culture to truly know what was shocking to them. But the tax collectors, verse 31, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. He's talking to the religious leaders, the holiest of holy men in their culture, so they thought, and he's talking about, in their mind, tax collectors and sinners, or tax collectors and prostitutes. These are the worst of the worst. Even the non-religious people hated them. Like, I'm not as bad as them. These were considered the worst of the worst. And Jesus is saying, they're getting into heaven before you. And understand that phrase, ahead of you, can also have the meaning instead of you. They're getting into heaven and you're not. You're not getting there. This was such an insult. And the point is that these worst of sinners understood so much more about Jesus than these these religious leaders who were stuck on their own authority. And I do want to say before I go on, Jesus says that the worst of sinners are being saved. I don't want to miss the hope and the grace here. Every time I talk and I interact with people, I always hear people say, oh, if you only knew this about me, if you only knew my background, if you only knew what I did, Jesus does, and he is pointing to the worst of the worst. This is going to come up again in another parable. And he's saying, even they are being saved. You don't have to fix yourself up. You must trust in Jesus. The Pharisees were so fixed up. They looked great. Everybody thought they were so amazing and holy, and they were missing the point. The real point is, who is Jesus? And are we willing to submit to his authority and obey him in our lives, trust him for our salvation? For the rest of us, I do want to challenge us. Our obedience to Christ demonstrates our belief in his authority in our life. It is inescapable. Obedience shows submission to Christ's authority. And I do want to talk about authority and submission. Obedience is the outward action. The way I'm using submission here, and there's a lot of different ways to go about this, but I'm talking about that inward mentality, that inward attitude. Do I submit in my heart and in my thoughts? Now, if we do that, it should show itself in obedience. But even in our heart and the way we think, Are we living with an attitude of submission? Look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. Jesus tells this parable of the tenants. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. 
He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized the servants. They beat one and killed the other and stoned a third. Then he sent the other ser- or sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is his, or this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Parables, simple. There's an owner. He got land and he planted a vineyard. And it's interesting because Jesus really shows the care of this owner. This is not some absentee landlord that just doesn't care. Look at what he does. He, he cares about it. He's not neglecting it. He puts a wall around it. He digs the wine press. He builds the watchtower. He does everything necessary for those that are going to work the vineyard to be successful. And then he rents it to others. This was something they were all familiar with, people that would live in town and they might have property out there. Maybe even some of these religious leaders fell into this boat. They had property. Yes, we have people caring for it. I couldn't imagine them not giving me my share of the proceeds when it's time. That's the whole point of why they lived there and worked the land. And this is where we get into the shocking elements. It is absurd to think of tenants not giving the landowner his share of the profits. It would have been part of the whole reason they were living there. They would have known that from day one. It would have been absolutely shocking for them to kill the servants of the landowner. What is most shocking of all, though, is that when the son goes and they kill him, they think that that means they would own the vineyard. That is ludicrous. Nowhere in their culture do you kill the son of the landowner and you just, hey, it's your land now, you won. That's not their culture and they all knew that. That's why it's so shocking because think of what the religious leaders were doing. This is our country. These are our people. This is our city of Jerusalem. Let's put this guy on the cross so we can stay in charge. Think about how we do that in our own lives. I'm not going to listen to the word of God. I reject Jesus as the Messiah. I'm in charge. And we think that because we claim we're in charge, that makes us in charge. No, it's ludicrous. It's not your world. You didn't make it. It's not your life. You didn't shape it. God is in charge of all things. And the religious leaders understand when they say he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They are actually pronouncing judgment on themselves and they don't even realize it. 
parables obvious with the allegorical elements. The landowner is God. The tenants are the religious leaders. The servants sent are Old Testament prophets all the way up to John the Baptist. They did it to him too. And of course, and this sets up such a beautiful picture. Who's the son? It's Jesus. And he's come and he hasn't come to judge. He's come to lead and direct. And yet they're killing him for it. And there will be a reckoning. Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 about this cornerstone. The whole psalm is about the coming of the promised Messiah, the deliverer, the Savior sent from God. And this cornerstone was so important in construction, it had to be perfectly shaped, perfectly fit to the structure. And the builders are looking at a stone and saying, that's garbage. We don't accept that. That doesn't fit at all. It's not what we need. And then they forget about it. And someday one of them's walking along and he hits his toe on it. and Boom, he falls down. There's the other image he gives is of it falling on someone. Maybe it's set up on something else and it rolls off and crushes him. And Jesus is saying, you overlooked the cornerstone. You ignored it. You judged me. And you're going to be judged by that. These religious leaders reject Jesus because he is not who they want him to be. And I want to challenge you. We all do the same thing. We sit in judgment, we think we're in charge, and we reject Jesus. Well, he's not giving me what I want. He's not doing the world the way it should be done. I know better. Submission to Jesus' authority means we recognize and accept his authority. We recognize and accept that our authority is not greater than his authority. We trust in his plans, his purposes, his methods. Obedience comes out of that action, or that attitude of submission, rather. Submission must start in our hearts and in our minds with an attitude that God is God and we are not. He is the authority. I am not. It's after this we learn that the religious leaders have learned nothing because they decide now they will arrest him. They are literally fulfilling the very thing he has just said. And they don't care. They're going to do it anyway. And this will set in motion a plot that will play out through the rest of this week leading up to the crucifixion. But we need to look at one more parable. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Because there's more at stake with understanding and accepting the authority of Jesus Christ than just being a good person, having a good heart, good mind, or even good actions. At the heart of understanding and accepting the authority of Jesus lays our eternal salvation. What Jesus is about to say is that if we don't accept his authority, we are lost and dead and condemned to hell forever. This is really important. Matthew chapter 22, 1 through 14, he tells the parable of the wedding banquet. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fattened calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them 
and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Again, the parable is very straightforward. When the king throws a banquet for the wedding of his son and you're invited, you go. Doesn't matter what you have going on in your life, you go. It would have been one of the highest honors of their life to attend this wedding banquet. And these wedding banquets would have gone on for days. It wasn't just an evening meal. It could have been all day long and even several days long. To be invited was such a huge honor. And so here, again, you get it. What's absurd, right? What doesn't make sense in the parable? What's shocking? What's shocking is that they refuse to come. Verse 5 says they go about their normal life. One goes to his field, another to his business. I don't know, King. Glad your son's getting married, but I'm kind of busy today. Got to clean the store. I mean, it's absolutely absurd and insulting to the king. And so the king goes out and he invites more. He goes to the street corner. Invite everybody. Bad and good. It doesn't matter. Just invite them. And again, let me just pause and let you hear the message of grace here. You're the street corner. I'm on the street corner. We are the people that were unworthy to be invited and the invitation to join the king at the wedding feast for his son has come to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God the Father says, come, be a part of what I'm doing. It doesn't matter if you're good. It doesn't matter if you're bad. What matters is if you come. Are you going to trust Jesus? But there's also a caution Verses 11 through 13, we, we see this one guy. The king came in to see the guest. He noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. And the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a lot of discussion around those passages and what this means. Some say it was the king's responsibility to provide wedding clothes. He hadn't provided wedding clothes. This guy got in, but he wasn't really saved. It's reading a lot into the text. It's possible, but it's reading a lot into it. What I see is that there's a whole crowd of people there. All of them are unworthy. But they've been invited by the king, and they have showed up for a wedding. He doesn't call anybody out on how they're dressed. Even the worst of sinners would have had their Sunday best, so to say. Might not have been much for who they were, but they knew enough to say, I am honoring the king. I'm going to do my best to show up appropriately. Because they trusted who he was and submitted to who he was. This guy showed up for an event to get out of it what he could. He didn't bother changing his clothes. There was no submission to the king. He's probably just there to get some free food. 
He's there with the group, but he's not there with the same heart attitude. And he knows it. When the king asks him, he's speechless. He has no defense. There is no real submission here to the king. There's just participation in the excitement of the moment. This passage and so many others like it always causes me anxiety as a pastor. I know anytime I stand up here to preach that there are people here because they love the people and that's good. There are people here because they hopefully enjoy the music, maybe like the teaching, it makes them feel good. Maybe they like the coffee or the potlucks. Oh, that's wonderful. But understand underneath and at the root and the heart of it all is the question, is Jesus in charge of your life? Are you submitting to him? Showing up for the good feelings is not enough. It's not enough. Church, preaching, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just to get you through the day or through the week. This is about eternal salvation through the son of God who gave his life in our place. Will we submit to him? Our salvation ultimately depends on our acceptance of the authority of Jesus Christ, the son of God in our life. Will we answer the question, who's in charge, with a very quick and excited answer, Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and my King. Are you holding on to authority in your own life? There's this fear that if we give up authority, we're going to be enslaved. And that too often is true in this world. But here's what I see in the word of God. When we submit to the authority of God in our lives, it doesn't lead to enslavement. It leads to a greater freedom than we can ever possibly imagine. You will be more free under the authority of Jesus Christ than under the authority that you think you have day to day. Submitting to the authority of Christ brings great freedom. So let me end with three questions. Are you saved? Do you accept and submit to Christ's authority in your life? Are you saved? Are you submitted? Are you living with a day-to-day submission in your heart and in your attitude that he is God, I am not, I will submit to his will in my life and in this world no matter what? Are you living in submission? And are you obeying? If you believe Jesus has authority in your life, do your actions show it? Are you living out that submission? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the question of authority cuts deep in our hearts because we like to fool ourselves into thinking we are in charge. We like to believe that we're pulling the strings of our own life We like to believe that we sit in judgment on everything else in our lives. And it is so hard for us to accept when someone else wants to be an authority over us. We see this even in our secular world today. We see it in our religious life today. But especially we see it in people's refusal to accept that you are God and we are not. 
And we so often refuse to submit to your authority. But God, you give us a picture of who you are. And you give us a picture of Jesus Christ as our Messiah that is so worthy of our submission that in submitting to him, we are set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are given new life, the banquet of the king, living in your vineyard, loved by you, cared for by you. And Father, one day your son is going to come again. And he will come to judge. And he will come to take home those who belong to him. And in that day, those saved by Jesus Christ will know a freedom that the history of this world cannot even fathom. And I pray, Father, for each one here, that right now in our lives, we would live trusting your authority, your grace, your mercy in every moment of our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.